If sometimes you see that I'm mad Don't you know no one alive can always be an angel When everything goes wrong you see some bad But I'm just a soul whose intentions are Good evening. You're listening to Prison Pipeline. My name is Emma. I use she and her pronouns. Um, tonight we have on air guest Carlos Ribolo. Um, Carlos, at the age of 15, was sentenced to 45 years in the state of Connecticut. He served a total of 24 years. During his incarceration, he earned an associate's degree in psychology and became a student of Yale University and the University of New Haven. He did interviews over the radio about his experiences in prison and the unprofessional conduct of the Department of Corrections. Those interviews led to HBO contacting him and doing a documentary. Carlos has been out now and is fully enrolled at the University of New Haven, pursuing a bachelor's degree in multi-platform journalism. Carlos, welcome to Prison Pipeline. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here, Emma. So Carlos, tell us a little bit about yourself. So yes, at the age of 15, I was sentenced to 45 years. Immediately when I entered the Department of Corrections, I was given the impression that any ideas that I had about being reformed or being corrected were completely thrown out the window when I met my very first correctional officer. And his introduction to me into that facility was, you like to beat women, people are going to love you here. They're going to have fun with you. And so in my mind, I was exactly where I left off, the senseless, chaotic environment. And then my mindset just became completely negative again. And I wouldn't even say became again. It reinforced the idea that I had about the world that I was living in and was about to enter. And so my immediate reaction was, okay, we'll see about that. And I was sent to general population. A few hours later, I was picked up by correctional officers and told that I couldn't be in general population because I was 15 years old. I had $500,000 bond, which was considered very high. And I had a serious crime. So they sent me to solitary confinement, placed me on high security, and then transferred me over to a security risk group. During that time that I was in that unit, I ended up having a lot of fights with the older gang members. As a result of those fights, I was then sent to chronic discipline where I would spend 23 hours a day inside of a cell and had to be shackled every time I stepped out of the cell and was required to take a shower while I was shackled as well. And so 15 years old, being introduced into a system that claims to have rehabilitation as his main priority, and I'm given the impression of the opposite. And so slowly I started, you know, coming into the idea that I had to behave the same exact way that I was behaving outside of the correctional institution. And I became very violent and I continually was punished and that was my life for the first 
six, seven years. And when I turned about 22, I was in solitary confinement for the last time. And I started to ask myself questions. And that's interesting because I stopped doing that completely. I was driven by my emotions. My only reality was what I felt. And that's all that mattered to me. And for the first time in a long time, I started to use my mind and allow myself to process things as close to logic as I could afford at that time. And so the question that impacted me out of all the others was, you know, if the world is the problem like I believe it is, then why am I the one that's always in trouble? And that placed a burden on me that I had lost when I was maybe seven years old. And the reason why I lost it at the age of seven is because I grew up in a very violent, chaotic and senseless environment. And it made me feel incompetent, incompetent because I, I had this sense that I couldn't understand the world around me. <clears throat> and because I was so dependent on the very people that were violating and abusing me, it made me think that I was the one that was at fault and was the problem. And so how do you fix that as a child? I had no idea. I had no one to turn to. But what gave me a different frame of reference was when I went to school and when I started learning. And reading had a profound impact on me because for the first time in my life and in my childhood, I felt competent because I could understand something about the world. And I just started reading everything I could get my hands on or my eyes on. And the problem with that was when I would return to my home environment, I would get the opposite impression of my worth. And so early on, there was this tension that was building within me. And the person that I loved so much, I felt that couldn't, he couldn't survive in the world that I was living in. And I had this choice of whether I held on to him and continued to be curious about my education and studious and try to, you know, go beyond the environment that was surrounding me or completely give up on that person and do the same exact things that I was being taught in my household, which were senseless, violent, irrational, chaotic behaviors. And it was too much for me. It was too much for me. And I remember thinking along the lines of something like, you know, if this is what the world wants from me, then this is what I'm going to give it. Now, like, I want you to understand, Emma, that in that position that I was in, I generalized my circumstances to the entire world. I didn't tell myself, you know, this is just in my household. And the rest of the world isn't like this. So let me try to seek other people who can help me. What I did at an early age, I said, this is reflective, representative of how the entire world operates. And so I'm going to react the same way that it reacts towards me. And in my mind, what ended up happening was that my world was reversed. And I shut my mind down completely and stopped asking questions because early on I was given the impression that asking questions was wrong. And what this did to me is that it put me in a position of power that was based on the confusion of other people. So whenever I would react violently or act irrationally and people were confused by that, for me it was reinforcement that I was doing something great because now I was the one that was confusing people. 
And so when psychologists and counselors and everybody you could think of reached out to me to help me, they didn't understand that in my mind what was going on was, oh, you're confused? You don't understand what's going on? Well, welcome to my world because I haven't been able to understand anything. And so this is the kind of thing that I found myself battling with the very first time I allowed myself to ask a question when I was in that cell in solitary confinement. And it just completely took the whole world out of the equation and placed the burden on me. Whereas now I have to ask myself, okay, you gave up on yourself when you were a child, no matter how unfair that may seem, I required that kind of responsibility and agency in order to get myself back on track. And I started to set goals and I started to work towards accomplishing them. And I became more independent and more confident in who I was as a person. And that's what initiated my process of change early on. So Carlos, um, a lot of people that I've interviewed who have, a, a lot of people who are former adults in custody say that they reach a point in their sentence where they come to an awareness of why they were incarcerated. They feel like they've learned the lesson that they needed to learn while they were in prison. And, you know, they've, they've, they've really done the learning that they needed to. So maybe they got clean if they were an addict, if they were people who had experiences with childhood trauma, like you did, they get counseling, they, they do a lot of reading and they get some education and they come to an awareness of who they are. Like, do you think that at that point is, is there like, is there a way that it would be better to address people's sentences? Like once they've reached that point of awareness and learning, because it sounds like you reached a point where maybe it would have been good, especially considering how young you were when you were sentenced to maybe take a second look at your sentence and maybe say, it looks like Carlos has learned what he needed to learn. And now maybe it's time to give Carlos like some real opportunities so that he can make something of himself as a person rather than just keeping him in prison. So yes, I wanna address the first part of your question first about you know certain men that come to a certain point in their incarceration where they realize that you know a change has to be made. The impression that I've gotten is that many men spend decades in prison and still continue with the same mentality and the same behaviors. And so unfortunately, even though we're all impacted by many unfortunate circumstances in our life, it's very difficult to make an honest effort in an environment that is full of men who are opposing you in your very efforts because they feel that the kind of life that you're trying to live, be it responsible, um, being accountable, educating yourself, and just being completely separated from the culture in prison, um, it's, it's a difficult thing. And so I had to go against men who continually told me that the kind of life that I was trying to live was impossible. And, you know, there's nothing magical about prison that suddenly turns human beings into different people. This is something that has to be initiated on a daily basis, and it's a very difficult process to go through. But I understood at root what I was trying to do. I wasn't just trying to become free. 
I wasn't just chasing this idea that my time one day would be reduced. I actually did it because of this feeling of competence that I loved so much that made me feel that I could take on any challenges and I wanted to continue working towards building that kind of character. And so I'm very careful because I could give this example because I think it's um, very appropriate for the question that I um, want to answer, is that when you have students, for example, in an educational setting in prison, you have many students who are there for the wrong reasons and will actually oppose the same trauma-ridden individuals that are trying to improve themselves. And it's a very, very chaotic and toxic environment. And so the question is, what do you do with the men who are trying to do better for themselves in the midst of men who are not only telling them that it's impossible to do so, but are also opposing them? So I think that, you know, to answer your second question, which is what should we do? I think you have to take account and put a careful eye and create a kind of environment that accounts for those who are making an honest effort while separating them from those who actually don't want to try at all and ridicule, ostracize, and make it very difficult for those who are trying. Um, so that would be my answer to that. Thank you. Um, you're listening to Prison Pipeline here on KBOO Community Radio. We're talking with Carlos Rabolo. Carlos was sentenced at the age of 15 to 45 years in prison. Um, he got out after 24 years and is currently pursuing a bachelor's degree in multi-platform journalism. Um, so Carlos, it sounds like education has played a really important role in your life, um, especially while you were an adult in custody. Can you talk about um, when you uh, first like started accessing the education system within uh, prison and how did it change your life? So yes, I actually had to go outside of prison to pursue my education. Um, when I was 23 years old, yes, 23 years old, I actually decided to write my family and tell them that I didn't want any more financial support at all. And I wanted to do that because one of the things I've always heard that a responsible person does is that they're independent. So I said, I want to be independent and I want to see what I can accomplish on my own. And that put me in a um, position where now I had to do things in order to support myself. And so I got a job. I started braiding hair, which is a skill that I learned, but I wasn't very good at. But I continued to practice, hone it, improve it. And I was able to make a living out of it. And it took me eight years to pay for my associate's degree through correspondence courses. And during the time that I was employed in the Department of Corrections, they actually fired me because I didn't have um, a social security number. And I wasn't allowed according to state law to earn over $600 a year if I didn't have a social security card or number. And I appealed to the warden, I appealed to as many administrators as I could, and they told me that there was absolutely nothing they can do about it. And I tried to explain that my education, you know, was at risk here. And that, you know, they should be willing to help me. And I received no help at all. So when I went before classification to um, change jobs, I appealed to the board. 
And I told them, listen, sis, the discrepancy is that I can't earn over $600 a year without a um, social security number, then can you just please drop my pay to 30 cents an hour? That would put me well under the $600 stipulation and also allow me to work while paying for my courses. And they were, they were just shocked. They said, you'll agree to work for 30 cents? I said, this is not a matter of you know agreeing or not. This is just something that I have to do. So if you'll let me work, for those 30 cents an hour, I'll still be able to pay the monthly payments that I have to um, pay and I'll figure the rest out. So they were like, okay, go back to work. Fortunately, my um, child's mother was able to get my social security number within two weeks and I was then pushed back up to 80 cents. But that was a very difficult experience for me because here I am, I'm trying to be independent and I'm pursuing something that's going to improve my life and propel me forward. And yet the very institution that's charged with promoting that and encouraging that, not only got me you know, fired, but also wouldn't help me in that time of need. So when I received my associate's degree, I was so like happy, but I knew that it wasn't enough. And like I told you, I asked myself at root, what is it that I'm trying to do? So if I'm not just trying to go home, if I'm not just trying to make an impression, um, what is it that I'm trying to do? And it required me to say, okay, I want to continue proving myself because it's making me more effective. It's improving my relationships. It's opening up many opportunities. And I have this clarity of mind and of thought and with myself as a person that I just begin to love. And so I wanted to continue pursuing that and I just would order many books and I would ask people for books and I would engage in conversations about books. And even before I reached Yale or the University of New Haven, I was already engaged in a process of education that prepared me for that setting. And, you know, I always said it, academically, Yale University and the University of New Haven were not an isolated space for me. They were an extension of how I approached my life in general. And so when I was sitting in the classroom, my thought process was, you know, I want to actually make this something of value. I want to actually like just show through education who I am as a person and why it's important for me to learn and have a voice in this space. And many of the students would take subjects and do presentations and write papers on things that weren't very personal to them. I refused to do that. Whatever paper I wrote would be filled with my ideas, my values. Um, whatever presentations I gave would be very intimate issues that many people were uncomfortable with, but I just wanted to continue entering every space with the totality of my person rather than convincing myself like other people were doing that only in certain spaces are you supposed to behave certain ways. And so that consistency paid off because I continue to accomplish things and continue to um, improve as a person. So I loved it. I just loved education. Thank you. Um, Carlos, you were also the subject uh, during your time as an adult in custody. You were the subject of an interview uh, by HBO and a documentary about your life. Can you talk about that um, and let people know where they can find that documentary in case they want to 
see uh, another story about your life. Yes, so um, I want to say something before I actually get into that. Um, while I was in prison, a lot of men, you know, heard about the documentary team coming into the prison and filming me. And I heard comments of the like that, you know, I'm lucky, I'm fortunate, these things don't happen every day. But what they didn't understand is that this was 16 years in the making. And I don't mean that um, HBO was seeking me out for 16 years. I mean that for 16 years, I was working to put myself in a position where somebody such as Breakthrough Films, who was hired by HBO to film me, would take acknowledgement of a story like mine and want to document it. And so what does that mean? It meant that I not only separated myself, but I continued to push myself beyond every single expectation that was given to me by the Department of Corrections. When they would tell me that a certain um, line had to be met, I would cross it. And I wouldn't settle at all. When I would be in a program and their standards would be low, I would ask them to raise it. And so I met two men who became my mentors. And when I mean that they saved my life, I mean they saved me from the Department of Corrections. Because what they imparted to me was an understanding that I was being misled and I was being fooled because nothing the Department of Corrections reflected the kind of reality that was waiting for me once I was released. And they began to provide me with literature that allowed me to understand what was required of me in order to succeed as a person. And these men created their own program and then they wrote their own book and it's called Down the Rabbit Hole, How the Department, How the Culture of Corrections Encourages Crime. As a result of publishing that book, they were retaliated against by the Department of Corrections and transferred out. But fortunately, one of my mentor, mentors was able to start doing interviews over the radio. And the benefit of that for us was that once we heard him on the radio complaining about the corrupt and unprofessional practices of the Department of Corrections, it opened the door for us to call the radio station as well. So we had three men in three different prisons reporting on the Department of Corrections. So it turned out bad for them. It turned out great for us. And during those interviews that I was doing, um, Breakthrough Films on behalf of HBO reached out to me and asked me if I would agree to do a documentary on my life. But that was decades and decades of work, um, of understanding, of courage, and of initiative in order to get the kind of message that I wanted out there that would generate the kind of attention that brought that documentary film to my life. Thanks. So again, Carlos, what is the name of the film that was on HBO that people can see if so, they want to learn more about you? So yes, they just finished filming. They concluded filming on December of 2022. So they're still editing. It's not out yet, but I will keep you posted on that. Oh, great. Thanks. But we could, do you think that might be on HBO Max? No, it's not even out yet at all. I have no idea. They'll let me know once it's um, released. Well, that's pretty exciting. And I hope, uh, I hope that gets out soon. So Carlos, now that you're out, um, we've, we've got about five minutes left in the show. Uh, tell me about your life now. What's going on for you now that you're released and what are your plans for the future? 
so yes, I've been actually speaking publicly um, at many, many important and significant um, events. I was asked to speak to 35 prosecutors at the Chief State's Attorney's Office here in Connecticut, and that was very impactful. I went to um, a high school, Capital Prep, to speak to students there on the prison to pipeline issue. There was a student that was doing a documentary and a project on that. So that was very um, impactful. I've also spoken to many returning citizens and programs, and I'm just going to as many spaces as I can to promote the message that, you know, the Department of Correction is flawed. It failed me, not only as a person, but as a child. And I've always said it, I'm not an inmate. I was a child of the Department of Corrections. And I knew and was aware of the contradictory of their practices, just like I knew those of my mother and my father when they came to love me and would beat me savagely. And so I'm well aware that it doesn't work and it needs to change. And I'm just out here trying to promote that message. Um, recently, I've been posting on Facebook this idea that I had about creating a company that would attract correctional officers away from the Department of Corrections. And I want to do that by pointing out the health risks that you know they're going to be facing once they are employed within those institutions. And I want to save the inmates just as much as I want to save the staff and hopefully put pressure on the Department of Corrections to improve their culture or either start shutting down prisons and find some alternative means of incarceration because what we have is killing everybody. Thank you, Carlos. What is the name of that book again? You mentioned that you, you found that book that was really kind of a turning point for you in understanding how the DOC works and how for you to be able to really liberate yourself internally, you had to, you know, you looked at this book and it really changed your frame of mind. What was the name of that book? Yes, so there are actually three books, four books that I read, and they're in order, and they're all by Dr. Statany Samanow. The first one is Inside the Criminal Mind, and the second, third, and fourth are a volume set called The Criminal Personality, and then the fourth one is Before It's Too Late, and it deals with juvenile delinquency. So those four books held the mirror up to me like actually five books. Those five books held the mirror up to me like I've never had put before me at all. And it showed me who I was and what I needed to do in order to change. And I committed myself to that um, and I became a better person. But at first I had to be aware and acknowledge my criminality and then work towards improving that. So that was the first and those books were tremendous help to me. Great, thank you. Uh, we've been talking tonight with Carlos Rivolo. Carlos did 24 years now and is the subject of an HBO documentary. Carlos, thank you so much for joining us on Prison Pipeline. Thank you so much, Anna. It was an honor. Baby, you understand me now. If sometimes you see that I'm mad. Don't you know no one alive can always be an angel When everything goes wrong you see some bad But I'm just a soul whose intentions are good Oh Lord, please don't let me be misunderstood 
FM, K282BH Philomus on 104.3 FM, and K220HR Hood River on 91.9. Tune in to KBU Monday mornings at 9 for the Old Mole Variety Hour, your source for radically democratic news, views, reviews, and interviews. Stories of ordinary and extraordinary people working to root down the oppressive institutions of capitalism. That's the Old Mole Variety Hour, Monday mornings at 9. One, two, three, four. Y'all ready for this? Ladies and gentlemen. 